home and loved here and encouraged in your walk, and uh, hopefully even more so after we study the Word together. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we're continuing our study in this wonderful book as Paul writes from Rome under house arrest, in chains, with a, a rotation of guards every six hours that are chained to him. He has some freedom, but simply to preach the gospel and to train uh, the leaders within the Roman church there. And uh, he has such a great attitude. And one of the things that we discovered about Paul is this man had joy. This man, under the most adverse circumstances, sitting on death row, had joy. And it was durable joy. And it was durable peace. Something that God has placed a desire for in the heart of every living human being is a desire for joy, lasting joy and peace. And Paul models it for us. And he, as he writes this beautiful, this wonderful brief letter to the church in Philippi, hidden within the letters and within the words and within the sentences are the principles for this kind of a life that Paul led. And so I want to continue to encourage you as we consider his life that you might enter into this life, even as a believer, that you might enter into the fullness of this joy that Paul had. But I'd like to begin by reading the text and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. So if you'll join me in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through the first 11 verses. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we come to you with this passage of Scripture this morning and, and so excited to be here, so anticipating not only your word, but the fellowship and the, the, the work you're going to do in us, Lord. So eager to say yes. So desirous to follow Christ. And so needy for your comfort and for your encouragement and your fellowship this morning. And so, God, we come, even in the midst of the challenges that we face, and we say, Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you mold us? Would you give us your perspective? And would you lead us into the joyful life that you promised? Not the easy life, but the joyful life, a life with purpose, a life of significance, a life with the ability to grow and to change and to be transformed, ability to advance the kingdom of God and to, to be partners in your great work, Lord. Would you allow all those things and more to take place 
And Holy Spirit, we're coming and we're asking, knowing that apart from you, we are powerless. And so would you fill me with power? Would you fill each person here with power? And would you give us the instruction and the tutoring and the mentoring that we need today to be able to live for you this week? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Over the last few weeks as we've been going through this book of Philippians, we've discovered quite a few things about Paul's life that I find very inspiring. I want to review those with us, uh, with you together. And uh, we're going to go over nine that we've already previously considered, but we're going to go over four more that we discovered last week, and then we're going to launch into additional ones this week. But what was the key to Paul's ability while on death row to be so full of joy and so full of peace. And the things that we discovered in the last few weeks is, number one, is that he was a follower and a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we found that he was others-centered in the very midst of his own crisis. He also accepted his high position in Christ because of the righteousness of Christ. He was now a saint and not a sinner. He understood and rejoiced in the unmerited favor of God. So the long journey of trying to be good enough was over because of Christ's gift on the cross. He remembered and made it a practice to recite the good in others. He made it a practice and a habit to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. He was absolutely assured and confident that what God had begun in him and those around him, God would complete. He openly and transparently loved people. He had a lifestyle of intercession in prayer for others. He recognized that even tragedy, even difficulties were divine appointments to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's purpose in his life. He cultivated an eternal perspective regarding both life and death. And he accepted that the Christian life would necessarily involve temporal suffering. These are the things that we've discovered about Paul so far. And really what we're talking about is just simply the normal Christian life. I, I read these things and you could look at this and say, I could never do that. I could never live that way. Well, I, what I want to share with you is that this is the normal Christian life. And I would agree with you, you can't do it. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And if you want durable joy and lasting peace, we have to take the models that we have in the Bible and examine their lives and then follow in their footsteps. And that's why Paul said so persuasively and so with such a heart of passion and, and appeal in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Why? Because that life that Paul was leading was a life that led to durable joy and durable peace and lasting significance and glory to God and the advancement of his kingdom. There isn't another way. This is the path of the Christian life. And it may seem difficult at times, and it is, because it requires a death to ourself on a daily basis. It requires laying it all down on a daily basis. And that is not easy to do. But the alternative is an empty, joyless life that's fragile and that is breakable and that is consistent and based only on circumstances. We've all done that and we've been dissatisfied. But God has given us another opportunity in another way. And it's through the cross of Christ and it's through the word of God. And Paul models it, for it, uh, models it for us beautifully as he lays out his heart to this church in Philippi who loves him so deeply as an apostle, but also as a brother in Christ. The other thing that we discovered in our last study, last two studies, was Paul's 
effort to prepare the church for external challenge. The persecution that was taking place in Philippi and Rome and even the persecution Paul was facing. And he gave them a very important word that we learned. Do you remember what it is? You guys are great. Procope, which means to advance. Pro, advance, cope means to beat the chest in grief. And so even as we're grieving, even as we're challenged by life, we keep advancing and we keep moving forward. And I think that's probably the best description of what life is really like in truth as a Christian is to keep advancing even as we struggle and even as we face trials of different kinds. And oh, I wish that the trials were just outside, but they're not. Because in this text that we're looking at today, Paul is actually addressing an internal problem within the church of Philippi. And if you flip over very briefly, I'm going to share with you at least a part of what that problem was in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul, in this section of Scripture, addresses an internal problem within the church. And he says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so we've got solid, identified believers who are having some sort of an unidentified conflict within the church. And it's in the, it's in the midst of this encouraging word to the, book of, uh, to, the, to the Philippi church in the book of Philippians that Paul touches on one of the other aspects of prokope that's not external to the church, but now internal to the church. And so we face problems and challenges outside the church that require this capacity to keep trusting God, not to quit, not to give up. I, we had this little dance that I taught everybody for hupomone. Hupomone. You guys remember what it is? You just kind of plant your feet like that, and you, and you go like this, and it's a really easy dance. I'm a terrible dancer. I can do this one. And that's where you stay under the load that God has allowed in your life, and you don't move until he lifts it from you. That's what it means to, to, uh, to continue to trust in God and to advance under, under difficult circumstances. Procope is a different word, and I almost get the idea of somebody, imagine like a, you know, 100 mile an hour wind, and I'm trying to get somewhere, and I'm just kind of like this, you know, and it's a step at a time, and I can do that. Anything that looks like, uh, you know, uh, the Munsters, I can do, uh, dancing-wise. Uh, but it's that, it, it's that sense of, of struggling forward, and I wish it were just outside, but sometimes it happens inside. Sometimes this need for Procope takes place in our marriage with our spouse, where we just feel like, you know, that's it. I just can't handle anymore. I want to leave. I want to bail. I want to I drop the mainsail. I want to give up and just be blown by the wind. I just don't care anymore. Or with your child who's wayward or, or disobedient. Or in a job situation where you're not being un understood by your boss or your employees are not responding properly. Or with a neighbor that you're having a conflict with. These are things that sometimes happen right here and sometimes, as we find in this text, it can even happen in the church. And the mandate from God is that we procope, that we keep moving forward and stay committed and keep trusting God and we do the hupomone, which is that we don't move until God lifts it. We don't find our own way. We don't work the angles. We don't strategize, but we put our trust in God. Paul was such a man. And so as this quarrel is threatening the internal peace and unity of the church, Paul writes these words in, in the second chapter of Philippians, verses 1 through 11. 
And he begins with this statement, if you have any encouragement, if you have any comfort, if you have any fellowship, this word if I need to clarify right out of the gate is not a statement of doubt, but a rhetorical if of certainty. We can, in essence, say since we have these things. It's not a question of, of whether we've got these things. Paul is saying, if you've experienced this, and the answer is, of course we have. We've all experienced the encouragement of being united with Christ. And this word encouragement means comfort or solace. There's something very beautiful about being united with Christ and for the first time being forgiven of our sins and being set free. And then suddenly this overwhelming comfort floods our heart with the knowledge that God has forgiven us and that we are loved simply by being united with Christ. He goes on to say that if you've received any comfort from his love, this word comfort actually means solace, but in a, in a clearer sense, it actually means strength. A, a solace that leads to a strengthening of a person's heart and soul. And so we've received this encouragement, this comfort that comes from being united with Christ, and now we've received a strengthening that comes from being united with Christ as well. And uh, a great passage that's kind of a similar um, idea and actually using the same Greek word in Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, the strength, who strengthens us or comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those who are uh, in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort or our strengthening overflows. And so we have encouragement. We're, we're comforted by God's fellowship, being united with him. And then we're comforted by his love because that strengthens us in this walk that we have as Christians. And then he says, if you've received any fellowship and benefited from any fellowship with the Spirit. Now I want to I park on this just for a minute. If I was a Pentecostal pastor, I wouldn't need to park on it because I'd be talking about the Holy Spirit all the time. But we're not a Pentecostal church. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We, we want them to operate in our church and in the fellowship. We believe in the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all those things. But we don't emphasize it to the degree that it's everything in the Christian life. The, the Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. The Holy Spirit's purpose and and identity is to reveal the Father and the Son. You'll notice throughout the, the book of the New Testament, he never draws attention to himself. The only time that we see anything kind of dramatic is in the opening chapters of the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes and the, the church is baptized with the Holy Spirit. But other than that, he's, he's working behind the scenes and he's encouraging, he's mentoring, he's comforting, he's tutoring, he's helping us to grow in our walk with God, he helps us to understand the word of God. And we have another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's actually in a benediction that Paul says. And he uses this statement. He says that he's praying that they would have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This word in the Greek is koinonia. It's the word that we use for fellowship with each other. It's, uh, it's talking, it's sharing, it's, it's being intimate. It's allowing our lives to intersect and, and to have meaning together as friends. And this is the word that Paul uses in relationship to what's normative for the Christian life. He's saying, you've got all these things. But I want to encourage you. I, I have found myself at times as a, 
as a believer caught between the two extremes when it comes to the identity and the, the work of the Holy Spirit. One extreme is swinging from chandeliers, uh, rolling on the carpet, uh, claiming all kinds of visions from God that maybe aren't really true. And on the other extreme is, I don't really feel comfortable talking about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of abuse, and I'm just going to stick with the Father and the Son. They're safe, you know, in the Bible. But the, but the thing that I really want to encourage us in is that we've got to find the biblical grounds. We cannot be forced to the extremes because both of those extremes, I believe, are dangerous. And instead, Paul invites us and he says, if you've received any fellowship from the Holy Spirit, any communion with the Spirit of God, it's so important that we develop this relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's emphasized again and again in the Bible and it begins when we get saved when we receive Christ in our hearts because Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that having believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And so when we receive Christ, we receive the Spirit of Christ. From that point on, it's a friendship that's developed by constant submission and by asking. And so the Bible says that if we ask, we will receive. And so if you don't really have a, a meaningful, vibrant relationship with the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you to pursue that just by asking. Just ask him. And then begin to acknowledge all the things that he's doing in your life, and you'll find that he's speaking quite often, quite frequently, and it's a major source of blessing for the believer. And Paul finishes it off in, in this fourth uh, uh, dynamic of the Christian life, tenderness and compassion which has to do with this, what Paul identifies as deep affection. It's the spleen, the splanchnon is what it is in the Greek, but it has to do with this internal set of organs. It's where we have feeling of emotion, where we have fear, and where we have butterflies when we're in love and when we're excited and when we have anticipation. And, and the Greeks use this part of the body to identify the guts. So if you really love somebody, you said, You're, you make my bowels churn, you know. It's just like, there's something going on here I can't quite get away from, you know. And it's right here in the gut, you know. Uh, I wouldn't suggest that on your next card to your wife or husband for an anniversary. But that's how the Greeks explained this, this feeling deep inside. And so he said, if you've ever had that feeling, have any of you ever had that as a Christian where you've had an emotion, you've had an experience with God, and it's just like, whoa, you know? And, and we don't want to live on those, but when they happen, they're, they're glorious experiences. And he says, if you've ever had those, and then he says something to follow it up. He says, you've had all these things. It's an assumption he's making. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, because you have had these things, because these things are a part of the normal Christian life, because God has poured out all of these graces upon you, he says, make my joy complete. Now, Paul's already got joy. He's up to his eyeballs in joy. For all the, he had every reason in the world to not be joyful, but he was just up to here with joy. And he says, make my joy complete. The word complete means to be overflowing. It means to be absolutely packed, jammed, full. And so he says, I'm up to my eyeballs, but I got about an inch and a half left here. Could you make my joy complete? I want to be all the way full of joy. And he's got an agenda, and I want to tell you what it is. There's a problem in the church. There's a conflict in the church. It involves these women, but it's, it's affecting other people and it threatens the unity of the church. And, he, and he's going to appeal to them to work diligently on this issue. And this is what he says. He says, be like-minded. Like-minded. It means to, it, it's not, he's not advocating uh, uniformity, 
He's advocating unity. When I talk about uniformity, that means everyone has to think the same way. They have to have the same gifts. They have to have the same personality, the same background. We're all automatons. We're all doing the very same thing, thinking the same way, uh, you know, catching each other, saying, I thought the same thing. That's exactly... Now, that's not what he's referring to because in Corinthians and also in Romans, Paul makes a point again and again that the body of Christ is made up of many different parts with different gifts and different styles and different ways of approaching things. And God has orchestrated this incredible cacophony of, of personality and styles and backgrounds. And he's knit them together in such a beautiful way that we can actually walk in unity in the midst of all this diversity. That's what Paul is getting at. He's not saying unity that I sometimes hear sometimes in the church despite major theological differences or despite sin issues, or despite violations of one kind or another. And we all just want to, you know, hold hands and go like this when there's sin in the church. He's not talking about that. That's evidence through all the rest of the Bible. Paul's saying no. He's not talking about that. But he is saying, I want you to be like-minded as it relates to the things of the kingdom. And I was thinking about how, how do we do this? How can we experience this kind of like-mindedness? I mean, I don't know how many people there are, but there are a lot of people here. And the idea that any two of us would be able to walk together is just, I don't know, I look at all of you and I, I know many of you and I know many of you pretty well. And the idea, I, the truth is, is a lot of us would have never been friends if we had not become Christians. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of you say to me, you would think to me, I could never relate to that guy in a million years. I don't even like the guy. But, but Jesus gives me love for him, you know, and it's okay. And, and you know, we, we work together in amazing ways. I was kind of commenting to our staff the other day uh, how different we are. Like I, I think about Bruce and I think about Scott and I think about Josh and I think about our leadership team and I think about our administrative staff and every one of us are just like, we are so different. Uh, and I have to constantly pull myself into check to remember I'm not trying for uniformity, we're aiming at unity. So I have to be careful not to aim at the things that I want to make it look like I'd like it to be but I want God to put us together and allow these beautiful varying gifts to flow together in such a way that God's glory is actually exemplified and magnified in greater ways than could ever happen if we had uniformity. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually addressing a, a, a very volatile issue about people that were sleeping with prostitutes. And in that context, he says, don't you realize that when you unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one with that prostitute of one flesh. And then he says something interesting that I want to focus on, but I'm just giving you the context. He says, but the one who unites himself to the Lord is one with him in spirit. The one that unites himself to the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's a, there's a hidden key here for this kind of unity in the church. It's not by uniformity, or even conformity, but it's by be, being united with Christ. Because if I'm united with Christ, I will have the mind of Christ. And if another person is united with Christ, they have the mind of Christ. And if you have four or five hundred people that are united with Christ, we will share the common bond and the common groundwork of the mind of Christ, and suddenly we have common ground. Does this begin to make sense? Now, is this easy? Everyone go like this. No, it's not easy because we still have flesh. If we were perfect in Christ, we would be united with Christ and we'd all be in agreement, and, uh, in agreement on everything. 
But we're not there yet because we're not perfected yet. So we have to work very hard. What's the word again that we have to implement here? Procope. We have to keep working at it. But the beginning is uniting ourselves with the Lord. And then he says, I want you to have the same love, the same affection, the same benevolence toward one another that, uh, that Jesus spoke of in John 13 when he said to the disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As my Father has loved me, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? Because when, when people outside see the, the, the unity of very diverse people coming together and being united and, and carrying a bond of the union with Christ in our relationships with each other, it's stunning because it doesn't exist in the world except in the church of Christ, the church of God. And so he says, have this same love. And he says, be one in spirit and purpose. He picks up on this in, in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see what is happening here? He's laying a groundwork. He's, he said, we, we're all partakers in this divine nature of Jesus Christ. We all have benefited from this relationship. And he says, make my joy complete by, by being united not uniform, but united in Christ, having this deep love for one another and also having uh, this same spirit and this united uh, purpose in Christ. And again, my question is, how is it possible for us to be united? How can, how can diverse people from different ethnic races and from different social strata and from different backgrounds and from different upbringings with different family life and all these differences, how can we possibly come together and experience this kind of unity? It's, it's, it's like, to me, when I think about it, it's a mountain I could never climb until I consider the words of Jeremiah in chapter 32, 39. And this is God's word. So encouraging. I will give them singleness of heart and action. That's what God says to the people of Israel. I don't think there's a, uh, they, they were not a diverse people. They weren't ethnically mixed. And yet they couldn't, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't get out of the desert for 40 years. They couldn't make up their minds. Every time something went wrong, even though God promised them all these great and wonderful promises, they kept doubting him and kept falling in faith and failing in every area and arena. And in the midst of that, God says to them, I'm going to give you singleness of heart and action. And if God can do it with millions of of, of Jews in the desert in all their disobedience and all of their hardness of heart and resistance and rebellion, then he can do it with a handful of people here in this church, can't he? And so the beginning is not us trying. It's just, if this goes back to the entire Christian life, if you've got a, I got a try harder mentality, you're going to have a difficult time in the Christian life. The beginning point is always God. He's always the initiator. It's always his idea. It's always his plan. Even any good thought that I have or that you have comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And so these thoughts of desire for what's right, this thought of unity, this desire to love, this effort to procope with others external to the church and to procope in the church and with our wife and with our husband and with our children and with our friendships, these things and this ability comes from God. 
And God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I will do it. And as they unite with me and have my mind, I will accomplish it. And the promise that we have in, in Philippians 1.6 is just as true for this as it is for the completion of his work in our individual lives is what he has begun, he will complete. Now he begins to address several issues that were also a problem that were growing in the church. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's a word that's actually a political word. It has to do with intrigue and faction and strife and contention. And uh, he later in Galatians 5 identifies this selfish ambition as the sinful nature and something that will keep a person from the kingdom of God. And so it needs to be relinquished. And he says also vain conceit. It, it's empty glorying. A good definition is, of it is to have an excessively favorable, favorable opinion of oneself. An excessively favorable opinion. There it is. Of oneself. And I want to share something with you because it would be very easy to gloss over this, but the truth is, is that we all have an excessively favorable opinion of ourselves. I wish it weren't so. And some of you are thinking, you have no idea how badly I feel about myself. I want to tell you, you have an excessively favorable opinion of yourself. And I want to just illustrate it this simple way. In the last disagreement that you had with someone, did you go into the discussion and the argument knowing in advance that you were wrong or believing you were right? Don't you all believe that 99.9%, .9 kind of like ivory, that you are right? Honestly, the truth is, is that we think we're right. We can't figure out what, what's wrong with other people. Why don't they get it? What's wrong with them? If they, what are they thinking, you know? What's motivating this? Why would they possibly do that? Why are they behaving this way? Why are they being so difficult? And on and on and on. And of course, they're thinking, what is wrong with them, you know? And, and so because we have that, I want to suggest to you that by nature, we have a tendency to have an excessively favorable opinion of ourselves and our ideas and our thoughts. And it's very difficult to overcome that. And Paul is saying that there's a problem in this particular situation of vain conceit that needs to be, to be dealt with. Paul's got a great balance in Romans 12.3. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, be honest and candid. You know what the, what the beginning point of, of, of releasing and relinquishing vain conceit is? It's simply admitting that it's quite possible that you have vain conceit. And just saying, you know what? I could be wrong. I could be completely ignorant and blind and shielded from the truth. And so one of the things that we can do if we come into a situation or a conflict is to be willing to be persuaded and not with a crowbar and a hammer, but with gentle words. And to be able to be persuaded to a certain point of, of view and, uh, and then to be able to share our view, but coming in with a humility about these issues. And that actually Paul goes on to talk about that and he's saying that the remedy is actually humility. He says in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So instead of putting like a... I, I, I kind of think this way. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but you know how we evaluate people? This is another uh, part of our excessive favorable opinion we have of ourselves is who put us in charge of identifying the value of someone else, right? But we do it every day. And we put numbers on people's foreheads. That's how I think of it. And uh, we, uh, there is six. I'm not talking about physique or body or anything like that. We do that too. But I'm talking about 
they're, they're, what they value, what's important to them. They have a little problem, and it's like, oop, they slipped to a five again. Uh, you know, and we just got this little thing going on in our heads. Are you laughing because you're laughing at me or because it's true? Okay. So we've got this, this little number system going on in our brain, and, and we're evaluating people. And what Paul is, in essence, saying is he says, get people pushed up to a higher number. Give them a higher number. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Love them. Encourage them. Recognize that they are in a process as well, and God is working in their life, and God loves that person, and God has a plan for that person. And God may have positioned you in a very strategic role to be able to help that person come to know him. And so this concept of putting numbers, and, and, and usually the numbers, we don't, we don't, we don't rate ourselves with that degree of severity, but we do it with other people. And what Paul is saying is be completely humble. Be completely humble and consider others better than yourselves. He says in Romans 12.10, to honor one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. And so he's laying the groundwork for this problem within the church for people to begin to think differently about one another in the midst of this problem. And, and, and if you want to resolve a problem in your marriage or a problem at home or with your child or at work or anywhere else, you can't begin by giving in your mind this person like a three and thinking, what an idiot, what a doofus, you know? This guy is just, he, he's so dumb, I, I don't even have a way to describe the, 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 the lunacy of his position. And you go in, and it's, you're not going to negotiate and understand each other and come to a place of mutual respect with that kind of an attitude. So he's laying the groundwork for a resolution to this particular problem by saying, consider others better than yourselves. And he says, secondly, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's not saying don't have a concern for your own interest. He says don't look exclusively to your own interest. This word in the Greek is skopeo, where we get our word scope from or telescope. And it means to examine. You know, it means to, you know, it means to check it out. It's looking. It's examining. It's considering. It's reviewing. And so it's not just a glance we're talking about. You don't use a telescope to glance at something. You get a telescope out because I can't see it well enough with the naked eye. And so I want to see it more clearly. I want to focus on it. And so Paul says that we are to look, scopeo, not only to our own interests, which is the natural bent that we have to be completely consumed and self-absorbed, but he says also look to the interests of others, which is another key to having unity over issues of disagreement. And then he wraps it all up by saying, this is the kicker, this is killer. If you forgot everything else, don't forget this. He says, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Just act like Jesus. Hold the priorities and the values of Jesus. Model yourself after Jesus. And so he says all these things are true, but he says it's all summarized in the attitude of Christ. And now he says that he wants this mind to be in us. He says, let this mind be in you. He, he doesn't force it upon us. It has to be something that we invite. We have to be willing to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to take an interest in others. We have to be willing to count all our blessings and in the midst of that say now, with my friend I'm having a problem with, or with, with my wife, or with your husband, or with your kids. How should I conduct myself in this, in this conflict or in this disagreement? How can I procope through the midst of this in a way that honors God and keeps these things in mind as it relates to Christ? God, I invite you. I want that mind in me. I want that attitude. I want to put that on in my own life as it relates to this issue. I want to take on the same attitude. 